the, so the first four secrets in the in our book are all about behaving with generosity, acting with a spirit of generosity to your spouse, to your partner, to your friend, appreciating them as one example. But the fifth is about being generous with yourself. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Mostly Balanced with Mia and Carly. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I love today's episode, so you're in for a treat. It's a fun one. We have a married couple, John and Anna. John is a writer and Anna is a therapist, and they teamed up together to write a book about the secrets to marriage and lasting love. Yeah. What an amazing topic. <laughs> so many good topics. I like got excited when I remembered that we had this episode to release. For some reason, we recorded it and then I thought we released it. And then when I was like, oh my God, we haven't released John and Anna yet. I was so excited to have everybody listen to it. It's such a treat. It's great advice. They have a very strong, stable, successful, happy marriage. And then coupled with like, She's a therapist and he writes all of these books about like the secrets to life. It's honestly the perfect conversation. Yeah, they were the cutest couple. Can't wait for everybody to hear it. Before we get into it, I wanted to share a new snack that I tried this week, which was so good. Me and I both tried them. And I had actually tried them before, but this is the first time that I've gotten my hands on more of their flavors. So the company is called Midday Squares, and it's basically like a protein bar slash chocolate bar that is made with all healthy functional ingredients. It's actually founded by a family, like it's a woman and her husband, and then also her brother that teamed up together to launch this company, Midday Squares. I believe that the woman founder used to work in the fashion industry. And then she was like always looking for something like a healthy snack to get her through the day and kind of like ideated this snack protein bar. And then years later, now they have this company and they I had gotten my hands on one and tried a flavor. I think it was their fudge flavor, which is basically just like a chocolate bar brownie. And it was so good. And then they were completely sold out. And so then once they restocked again, they were nice enough to send us each a box that had a mixed like a sampler pack. So they have a fudge flavor, which again is just chocolate. They have a crunch flavor, which is like a crunch bar, basically, but healthy. And then they have a peanut butter flavor, which is the one that I tried this week. And it was so good. So I highly recommend, like I said, you can really like trust their ingredients. They Their whole slogan is that they're everything a chocolate bar isn't and everything a protein bar wishes it was. And like I said, it's made with functional ingredients. It is good for you. So you can feel good about eating it. But it also does like I feel like give me energy if I have one in the afternoon, if I'm kind of feeling like sluggish, or I just need something to hold me over until dinner. So I definitely recommend we will link it in the show notes. I love them. I got a package of them and I was so surprised and happy because I didn't realize they were sending me some too. So it was such a treat. And I tried it when I got the package at 10 p.m. So not a midday snack for me, but it could be a dessert. It was delicious. I had the peanut butter one. Yeah, they're so good. And I didn't mention that they are plant-based. So it's all plant protein and then it's made with superfoods as well. So if you are vegan and you are looking for a vegan protein option, this is definitely a great one. I love it. I also have a snack to talk about today. My new thing is love corn, corn nuts. So there's a little bit of a backstory because on my birthday, we went to weather up that cocktail bar on my street. There's also one in Tribeca. And 
they don't, they only have like all these fun, fancy cocktails and not any food, but they have corn nuts you could get for the table for your drinks. And I, Dan doesn't eat corn, an allergy. And I ate the entire bowl of corn nuts when they came to the table. And it was like an obsession. I couldn't stop. They were so good. I needed, <laughs> I needed more and more. So I Googled some because I'm like, there has to be like a cute, sustainable, like small business brand that's making corn nuts because it's just roasted corn. Yeah. So of course I found one and I had never heard of it because I've never really been in the industry of looking for a corn snack. So in the corn nut market. In the corn nut market. So I found Love Corn. I was drawn to it because of its super cute packaging. It is the best snacks and it's healthy. So they have a lot of different flavors. I've only tried the the basic sea salt flavor. And it is just corn, non-GMO corn, sea salt and sunflower oil. And that is it. And they are so crunchy and salty and delicious. And I am such a snacker, like during the day around three or four o'clock, I need a snack. And lately it's just been corn nuts. So I highly recommend them. They're addicting and amazing. I do too. They're so good. They used to be my favorite airplane snack. Those, the corn snacks. I used to get the is it like a blue package, the mm-hmm. sea salt one? Yeah, they're so good. I love them. I've never tried any of the other flavors, only the sea salt. Me neither. And the brand was so nice to just see my organic love for corn nuts. And they are going to send me all of the other flavors. So they have like, they have a salt and vinegar, they have barbecue, they have habanero. So yeah, I'm down to try all of those, but I highly recommend them. Yeah, you have to fill us in on how the other flavors are. Oh, I will. I'm obsessed with corn nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan won't even eat your snacks since he can't. He laughed when he, he we, we were laughing about this the whole time. Like I just couldn't stop eating corn nuts. And then he opened up the cabinet and he's like, oh my God, there's a million, you got a million bags. Of these. Oh my God. Well, should we pick our cards before we get into the episode? Yes. So we love to pick cards from Esther Perel's game. Where should we begin? So we will pick three cards today. Our three cards today are... My favorite love story to tell, I'm particularly stubborn about, and the most unexpected compliment I've ever received. Oh, those are all so good. They are. Which one do you like? I like the most unexpected compliment, but I'm trying to think what mine is. Yeah. Oh, I actually don't. (laughs) What's yours? One time my dad told me that I have a really even temperament. And I thought that was a really nice compliment. That's not something you like throw around and tell people all the time. And I like to pride myself on that. And I think it was the product of being the youngest in a big family and like always being more of the observer. And I don't know, like I was so young when they were having fights or arguments or just have really adult conversations. I wasn't I just was more of the passive listener for a lot of my childhood. And I think I I would love to think I have even temperament. Yeah, I feel like you definitely do. That's definitely a good one. Yeah, those were fun ones. I feel like the other ones will have to answer eventually. Yeah, I'll have to think of my favorite love story. Yeah, I love that topic. Me too. Love stories are the best. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think you guys are all going to love this episode and definitely check out their book, The Go-Giver Marriage. I think that it's a good, helpful book for anybody to read, whether you're married, thinking about getting married or not even close to being married. I feel like you could learn a lot from it. I definitely learned a lot from John and Anna. 
Mm-hmm. And Anna mentions that the book's good for any relationship, relationship with your family, with your children, with your friends, with your coworkers. So highly recommend reading. Yes, me too. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Welcome back. We have two guests today that we're so excited about. They are co-authors of the book, The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. And this book is extra special because the co-author of the Go-Giver series teamed up with his wife, a therapist, to write this book together. So welcome to Mostly Balanced, John David and Anna Gabriel Mann. Thank you. We're so excited to have you guys on. So this is always a fun dynamic when we have two guests because now there's four of us on here. But why don't we just start? We always like to tell, have our guests tell our listeners a little bit more about themselves. So can you just tell everybody where you guys are both from, where you two live now, and then just a little bit more about what you both do? Well, we live half of the year in Florida and half of the year in Western Massachusetts. I am a therapist and for the most part, coach clients and work with clients. And I also teach a workshop called Living the Five Secrets to Lasting Love and along with John. And we also teach the Go-Giver Marriage Coaches Training Program. Uh, It's my cue. So my name is John and uh, I started out in life as a musician and I eventually uh, rolled into becoming a writer, which is what I am professionally now. I've published over 30 books. It's just, it's, I've kind of discovered my life calling, but this is the first book I've written with my wife. So this is really exciting for us. She's been there for all the other books. She's the first reader of every book I write. She's always the first one to pick up the manuscript of the very rough draft. And she's great. She's, she's the one who has the most acute eye and can tell me what's working and what needs adjustments and and all that. But this is, this is our chance to write together. So I, I really wrote the first half of the book, uh, which is a parable. First half of the book is called The Parable. And the second half of the book is called The Practice. And that's the half she wrote. And I mean, we both oversaw the whole book. We both had input in each other's parts. But it was really a good division of labor of my storytelling in the beginning and her, her uh, understanding of human nature and of the practicality of how to elevate relationships to a, to a really beautiful place. That's what she does in the, in the second half. So... That's what we did. Wow. I that is so cool. That. Before we get into like our questions about the book and everything, how did you make that transition from being a musician to being a writer? Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I was a professional musician from a family of professional musicians. I played the cello and I was a composer. And that's what I was, you know, that was going to be my whole life. And I was playing one day, I was playing a recital and I was, I was playing the cello and looking out at the audience. And I just had this sense that people in the audience were enjoying the music, but they weren't happy, healthy people. And I just got this thought, it's great to play music and give a little gift in people's lives, but I, I'm not happy with that because people aren't healthy, people aren't happy. And I got totally involved in, in the whole field of nutrition and natural health and all of that. And uh, from there, I, I ended up everything that I did, I ended up always being the guy who was editing the newsletter or writing the poster or doing whatever needed doing with letters and words. So it took me until I was in my 40s to late 40s to figure out that what I really was under the skin was a closet writer. And that's that was the, the mean. <laughs> it, was, it was itching to get out. So it did. And uh, I just I took it up. And it made me no money at all for years and years and years. So it was a scary thing. But I just held on, like holding on to the dog of a, of a wild beast. And eventually I got to ride it. 
Well, that's an amazing accomplishment. I think that speaks to just the power of really following your passion and that it's never too late to make a change like that. And interesting that you made such an observation. I think we can all kind of relate to that, like finding maybe music was the band-aid, but the root of the problem you were able to see and wanted to really make an impact and help there. So I really love that. I think that's a theme that we touch on a lot on our podcast too. I don't even know where to start with the two of you because I want to hear so much about your relationship, but I also want to hear so much about the book. So why don't we start maybe with the landscape of the go-giver marriage? And I'm sure when we dive into the meat of it, we'll hear more about your relationship. So tell us about the book. Well, I'll just introduce it to say that when the first draft of the original go-giver, this this is a book that came out in, in 2008. And then when the first draft of that book slipped off my desktop printer, Anna read it and said, this book is going to be huge. And it was my first book, more or less. So, you know, I was I was an unknown then. She said, this is going to be huge. This is great. And this describes how we live. This is like us. This would be a great book about relationships. She had that idea back in 2005 before the first book came out. We wanted to write this book together for almost 20 years. And it just, you know, a lot of other books had to happen first and life intervened. It's been a long time coming. And it was during the pandemic that we realized that everybody was cooped up. And so we started writing the book right at the, just about a month before the pandemic just broke wide open. And we knew people were, were really cooped up and that they had kids underfoot and they were trying to make jobs work and kids weren't in school and, you know, that all kinds of complications to relationships were happening and a, a tremendous amount of difficulty was going down. And this is kind of a passion of my work is that when you change behavior, you see really significant changes in the relationship and that it's, it's not enough to have insight. It's about changing your behavior in small ways that the most powerful changes in life are made by the little things you do. It could be just deciding to add a green drink to your diet or just little things that you decide that you're going to put into your daily routine. Like maybe you're going to make sure that you go out for that two or three mile walk, or you add a yoga practice or something like that, and you really stick to it. Those kinds of changes over a long time make a significant difference in your life. And these secrets are based on developmental theory. They're based on what you needed as a child and as an adolescent, you still need as an adult. And so I really wanted to share them. And I really wanted to, I mean, John's a brilliant parable writer. So I kind of wanted to go with that format. But at the same time, I really wanted to have the second half of the book sort of unwrap what's the psychology underneath it. And also, what are the opposites of these secrets? What are the behaviors, especially that really what we call the toxic behaviors that really take down relationships? Because for most of your listeners, whether you're in a relationship or entering one or eventually plan to be married, the secrets apply to all levels of relationship, even with your boss or employees or children, things of that sort. Yeah, definitely. And the secrets that you're referring to are the five secrets to lasting love, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I know we're not going to go through all of them. And everyone listening can definitely read the book to learn more about all five of them. But can you guys give us just one of them, like an example of what one of them is, or maybe your favorite one? (laughs) <laughs> oh boy. I have to make sure the doors are closed and no one's listening. Okay. Yes. I'll tell the secret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we actually don't have a favorite. We joke because we have five children and we say there's no favorites, but I'm very partial to the first secret simply because it's so simple. 
that people assume that it's handled. They don't actually take action on it. And the first secret is to appreciate. And what it really means is to take time to notice every day things that you love about your partner and then to stop them, take the time to actually authentically share what you love about them. So that is a powerful practice because when you're a little kid and your grandma says, look at you, you can read that book all by yourself. You know, you're like taller in your shoes and you feel that sense of being capable. And I think that in the adult world, there's crushing competition. There is narratives that are false, that are not really narratives that you should be trying to attain or follow, especially in social media. So many people really want to have a presence. They want to be somebody who's noticed. And I think that when you're in a place where you're getting acknowledged by somebody that you're really close to, and there's an intimacy there, it's very, very powerful because it's as powerful as having your parents really confirm who you are when you're young. And I think that most people come out of families where that confirmation or that message from parents is fleeting. You know, there's, it's sometimes there in some families or lots of families, it's hardly there. So I think it really colors how you are in the world and it, it has an impact. Yeah, I've known people in the music world who were famous and not a lot of people, but some but who were famous and had the adulation of tens of thousands of fans, but were lonely because they didn't have anybody close to them who gave them that adulation. It's like Anna said, you know, when your grandmother or your mom or your or somebody that you or a favorite teacher when you're little says to you, look at you, you can read that whole book by yourself or you are growing up, you are so big or just says, you know, how lovely you are, how whatever you are, you feel like, ah, they get me. And I really am that great, aren't I? And here's the thing about that. We still need that. It's like we think we're sophisticated, grown up, adults, and and maybe we are, but there's also a little kid inside each one of us who still needs to be told, look at you, you can read that whole book by yourself. And so that's what, when we're first together in in the romance of, of early love, we tend to do that a lot, but then we forget, we let it slide because life intervenes with all of its stresses and urgencies and things that demand our attention, right? And so it can be really soon when suddenly we're just kind of not saying those things anymore, just taking them for granted. And the other thing that happens in relationships is that we all bring our unconscious emotional baggage from childhood into our relationships. And that is a significant factor that really colors the relationship over time. As John said, while you're dating, it's all magic. And even right up to the marriage and the honeymoon, it's pretty magical. You adore everything about each other. You're kind of wild about each other. And everybody wants to ride off on this wave of romance. But that wave of romance is not real. You know, people have miscarriages. People get fired from their jobs. People get in car accidents. Stuff happens that upends your life in ways where you're really in it together and challenges are coming up. And so as the so-called honeymoon wears off, there's a great reckoning where Maybe one of you is very controlling. Maybe one of you got assaulted in college and you really have some residual issues in the bedroom. And I don't mean to make that sound just casual. When something happens to somebody that's traumatic, we carry that trauma and that trauma can get triggered and it can create anxiety. Maybe one of you has anxiety. One of the examples in the back of the book is a couple where she has residual anxiety from an assault. 
And this was a client who was gracious enough to let us use the stories without their names. And, you know, those kinds of things have a big impact on people because maybe your partner just wants your anxiety to go away. And so they're really just trying to control it. And these behaviors are essentially codependent, but we bring that stuff from our childhood. We come out of families where we were taught, I'm going to love you more if you're like this or like that. And those are ways that we all try to alter ourselves in order to meet the moment, but it's not authentic. Mm. The appreciation and that that very simple advice or secret is so powerful. And for all of the reasons that you mentioned, but it's it's something that we so easily forget and do take for granted. And you go through all these phases or seasons with a partner. And of course, some of them are so happy and romantic. I'm getting married. I'm getting married later this year. So I'm probably in one of the highs of my relationship (laughs) right now. But I agree with that advice so much of fully accepting and appreciating your partner. I think Carly, in our first relationship episode ever, we talked about communicating with a partner and being very appreciative and bringing someone up when they're doing something that you love and that you want more of and you recognize in them rather than tearing someone down or nagging them or bringing that negativity to the surface. So it's so simple. It's something that you can do. Going back to what you said, adding a green juice to your day can make a huge impact. Being appreciative and being cognizant and not taking for granted, that is so simple. People forget that, but it is it makes lasting impact in your relationship. Yes. And you spoke about criticism and criticism is the opposite of appreciation. Every secret has an opposing toxic behavior, Mm. if you will. And we feel that right now across America, that our society is in an epidemic of criticism. People are criticizing each other on social media. Mm -hmm. It's not just contained in personal relationships. But in personal relationships, criticism is considered by the Gottmans, who basically are marriage researchers, they consider criticism one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, one of the factors that will take down a marriage so significantly that it will actually cause it to end. And we call it death by a thousand cuts because you can get into criticism in these little subtle ways where it's just like, gee, I wish you wouldn't leave the sponge on the side of the sink. You know, you could tuck it into this little drawer that's right in front of the sink. You know, it would really be so much cleaner, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, (laughs) it's one person's control and they're acting it on another person in order to get what they want. But the criticism is still the same. It's criticism and it doesn't feel good. So that's why practicing appreciation is so important. And the reason why these secrets are their behaviors that you enact is because we believe that love is a practice, just like learning to play the cello or the violin or becoming a star athlete or a skater. Those are all things that take 10,000 to 20,000 hours of practice to get good at in a marriage or any relationship. And especially I speak to people who might be listening that have young children. You know, your children really need your praise and attention. And when you appreciate your child, you're letting them know that I think you're really special. I think you're amazing. And that just makes their self-esteem blossom. And it's really the same in adult, in adult relationships. And there's a dynamic. I want to make sure people uh, see, see this, understand it's a mechanism that's actually really simple, but it, it's, it's easy to miss. And it's like this, this appreciation thing, the voicing, not just appreciating the person, 
but taking the time to say so, to actually put it to words and to articulate it. And not just appreciation in a vague way, like I think you're swell, or I love you, or I think you're magnificent, or I think you're gorgeous, or whatever. That's all lovely, but but something specific about the person that you really appreciate. To point that out, when you stop doing that, or when that slides, you create a vacuum. And that that's kind of like lover's quicksand. It's the vacuum that you, is where criticism starts to slide in. Criticism comes in to fill the vacuum of forgotten appreciation. So what happens is, it's like a daily habit. You start looking for things to criticize. You can't help it. It's a human tendency to start looking for things. And so you start looking for things to criticize. And that can snowball. It creates its own momentum. So that 20 years later, you got this pattern going of both of you picking at each other. And it's barely tolerable, but somehow you manage to get by. And isn't that just tragic? It's like it doesn't have to be that way. The way to get rid of a bad habit is not to focus on it and try to stop, but to replace it with a good habit. And it's just like your health, right? The things you do every day. So when you start doing this practice of appreciation, and it can feel almost silly, like it can feel so elementary. We have clients actually write down on paper three things a day that they appreciate about their partner and then like do their homework and go tell them. And <laughs> Sometimes they say, I feel like an idiot. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Feel like an idiot. Do it anyway. I promise you, your partner will totally appreciate it. The more awkward, the better, in fact, sometimes. So the thing is that as you do that, it shoves out, it pushes out the criticism. That's the way to stop the critical habit is to replace it with an appreciation habit. And Mia, you know, that you say you, you're probably in that, in that golden, whatever you said, a happy, happy golden flush right now. That happy golden flush is still available 40 years later. I mean, we've been together for 25 to years. We've been together for 25 years. And, and honestly, every week we're, we say to each other, how does this work? Man, we are like, I love you more now than I did a year ago, which was more than it was a year before that, which was more than it was 10 years before that. I mean, we adore each other, but it's not something that we force. It just, it's just there like, like a spring of water out of the earth because it comes out of the way that we, we are with each other every day. And I think that that's true for everybody. I think that anybody who's, who falls in love, it's not like you fall gradually out of love. It's you fall out of practice. Like you can be a fantastic mm. tennis player, but if you don't play after a couple of years, you're still a fantastic tennis player. You just can't do it anymore because you're out of practice. And one thing I like to share with readers or with, with listeners, because often when I'm talking to older audiences, I will say to them, look, I just want you to know that your kids right now could be in a bar having a cocktail with their friend telling a story about you and your marriage, because every kid comes out of every family with a story about their parents' relationship. I have heard 22-year-olds say, oh, my dad is a sweetheart, but my mom's been picking on him for 25 years. <laughs> you know, and it's like, whoa, you know, just remember that you are modeling for your children what an adult marriage looks like. And so if you want them to see love and affection and mutual you know, respect and boundaries and just power, then you really have to think about that and, and take the time to model it, to really keep that relationship on track. That is so true. It's definitely a lot of responsibility. What you were saying earlier is so true about criticism that it's definitely a big problem, whether it's with each other or even self-criticism. And I feel like when we're not getting appreciated by our partner, we'll start to criticize ourselves. And then that just piles on. 
So I love the advice of making a list and telling your partner what you love about them and what you appreciate. But what if you just feel like you aren't being appreciated back, like you're doing all of this and it's not getting reciprocated? Do you have advice for how to ask for that from your partner? That is a really, really great question. I mean, really great. And the reason is that one of the things that we emphasize in the book is that most people give with the expectation of receiving. They give wanting to get. And the purpose of the book and the practice is to give without expectation. And I think that my advice always is to sit down together and to have a a very sane, calm conversation about not about how much you're appreciating them and you're not getting any back, but rather that you've been feeling lonely or you've been feeling sidelined by their work or you've been, you know, like put it in concrete terms and that you're missing having more of their time and attention. And that way it kind of wakes them up without blaming them and allows them to step in. The other thing that's happening in houses across America right now is, you know, a lot of people are reading the book and then they're, you know, really encouraging their spouse to read it because they want their spouse to be on board with the practice of it. But we've, we really have been doing this for a long time. And what we've observed is that even one person in the marriage can be practicing the secrets and it will change the way that the relationship's going. And I'll, I'll share one client story that she's given me permission to talk about this because it's pretty simple. But I have a client that from about a year or so more ago that basically she started practicing the secrets and she really started getting into it with her husband. She was appreciating him at least four times a day in very authentic terms. He was very mechanical, really good carpenter. And I mean, she was just letting him know all the ways that the things on her honey-do list just got done all the time and how she never said thank you enough and that she really wanted him to know how much she appreciated, not just that he did these things, but that he was so skilled. And, you know, so she was taking it all over the place. And she said, you know, he never brought her flowers and he never brought gifts. And she said one Friday night he came home and he had flowers and he also had this really pretty silk scarf with him in a box all wrapped. And she said she was so blown away. And she said, I have to tell you, my husband's a really simple man. Like this was a big, big gesture. So she really felt like what she was doing was really making it happen. She said he's not a really expressive person. She never expected him to come back and start complimenting her or appreciating her in quite the same way. But he stopped her, like maybe two days later, he stopped her in her tracks in the kitchen. And he said, because she makes homemade coffee cakes. And she said, he said, you know, I never tell you this enough, but I grew up eating Entenmann's. And then Entenmann's are good, you know, but (laughs) they're not homemade coffee cakes. And I love your homemade (laughs) coffee cakes. And I really, really appreciate that you make these homemade coffee cakes for me. And she said she was like standing there going, you know, like she she was shocked and he hadn't read the book. So she felt like just the behaviors that she was doing were making such having such an impact. And she said he became a total cuddle bear, like really sweet to her, like just the whole tone of the marriage changed and only she practiced. So it really can be that it'll reverberate back. But you can't be, you know, as I like to say, you can't be standing right there with your hands on your hips waiting for it. Because that's, again, getting back into that transactional place where you're giving with expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about the scorecard and about how deadly it can be. And it's so easy to keep. It's so easy to start keeping this sort of mental tally. 
And it can be, we often give examples of simple things like I did the dishes three times that, you know, when is it your turn? Or I bring home, you know, I bring home this amount of money. How much do you bring home into the household? And so I've seen guys who actually have this attitude. It's like, I earn more income than you. Therefore, what? I somehow have more power, more rights to happiness. I don't know what the thinking is there, but it's crazy. That kind of balanced scorekeeping. But it can also be something like you're describing, Carly, like, eh, you know, I've been generous in attitude toward him this much and I'm not getting it back. It, it's so insidious, the scorecard, because what it does is it separates us. It starts to, to it reinforces sort of the you versus me of the relationship. Are we balanced? We like to tell people marriage is not fair. It's just not. And the reason we say that is if you go looking for it to be fair, you're already sort of off the path because what marriage is, is it's an opportunity for both of us or it can be just a, relate, a long-term relationship is an opportunity for both of us to flourish in the presence of another person. That's really the opportunity here. And to the extent that I provide you the opportunity to flourish and that you provide me the opportunity to flourish, this relationship is, is booming. It's off to a great pace. If it becomes a negotiation of how much do you get and how much do I get, then it's, it's already ailing. It's already, you got cracks in the pavement. I'll say this, there's five secrets in the book. And in all the Go-Giver books, there's, there's a set of five principles. And the fifth is always seemingly opposite to the first four. We call it the four fingers and a thumb. And the, so the first four secrets in, the, in our book are all about behaving with generosity, acting with a spirit of generosity to your spouse, to your partner, to your friend, appreciating them as one example. But the fifth is about being generous with yourself. It's about taking care of yourself. And this may sound kind of odd, but it's a really critical ingredient in your relationship that you take care of yourself. And that includes boundaries. Yeah. Yes. If you don't take care of yourself, if you don't have, if you don't have your own clarity of boundaries of what I need and who I am and where I, be, where I end and you begin, and if you don't have a clear path of, of nourishing your own kind of your life path, your, what you're here for, then you're actually harming the relationship. The relationship relies on you being a person who's thriving. So we really emphasize that too with people. Make sure that you're getting fed, you're feeding yourself. That's such great advice. And I think a lot of what you're saying, like the scorecard and feeling like a relationship's unbalanced, it's already coming from a place of you not feeling appreciated if you feel the yes. need to keep a scorecard and if you feel the need to make sure you're giving exactly what you're receiving. And I think an antidote to that, in addition to appreciating your partner and showing up and acting all of these great principles and acting how you want to be treated and what you want to receive. But it is having that full appreciation of yourself and filling up your own cup before you can expect to show up to a relationship. We always do say your relationship's a mirror of yourself and you'll probably get what you're giving. So that is very in line with what you are saying in your advice for getting that appreciation in a relationship. But if you had to give a few examples of conversations that are pretty crucial for a couple to have to set themselves up for the future or to set the foundation for a healthy relationship? Or if you had to pick one, like one really significant conversation for a couple to have, what would it be? I'm looking at you, sweetheart. I figure you have something great to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it's important to talk about money. That's what I was thinking too. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Because People come from different levels of money education and money awareness. Some families really grow their children on a lack mentality. 
and some families grow their children on an abundance mentality. And everyone has a plan for how finances are going to unfold, but the best laid plans often have roadblocks here and there. So I think it's it's an important conversation simply because you want to determine what is the other person's intentions around money? Are they going to keep score with you on money? If you decide to go buy a fabulous new pair of shoes because they're on sale and you just love them, is that going to be something you're going to have to answer to when you get home? I think those are really important conversations because I just have seen people get in knockdown drag out fights over who's spending what and who's bringing in what and who balances the checkbook and who doesn't, that kind of thing. So that's money is a really important one. I think spirituality is an important one too. I've seen couples that get together where one person's from a family of faith and the other one isn't. And they, they're so in love that they think it really won't impact or matter. But then once there's children on board, all of a sudden it's showing up as something that really matters. And those are important conversations. Hmm. You know, I, I personally think sex is a really important conversation. I think that when you fall in love, you know, the sex is fabulous in the beginning. Often it's just, you know, like magical almost. But I think it's really important that there's some conversation about w what people want and expectations and things like that, because you never know what's going to happen when you're pregnant. You might suddenly have no desire or you might be somebody who wants to have sex all the time. You know, I've seen it go both ways for women. And I've also seen people after they've had a miscarriage or something tragic has happened in their family, their libido is down, their interest is down. And I also think it's important from the, another standpoint, and that is, what are the boundaries? You know, it, do you really feel certain that this person is not going to be somebody that will step outside of the relationship? And I think that those are important conversations. I certainly agree with that. And I think sex and money are, the, are two of the places that couples frequently don't talk at all, which is so weird. But it, it's just people sort of have this assumption that with sex, especially that it should just work. And with money, you know, a good friend of mine who's an author writes about personal finance says money is the gravest, biggest problem in, in, in so many marriages. It's not the lack of money. It's the lack of talking about money. And because we all come into it with these assumptions, as, as, as Anna said, we learned from our parents, how our parents approach money and what their attitude was. I remember my, when I was a little kid, my mom had the piano tuner in to tune our, our Steinway piano and she had to write a check out for $25. And she showed me there was $26 in their account. And they didn't have any more money than that. And she, she kind of showed to me proudly, it's like, this really mattered to our household to have the piano in tune. If we didn't have food to eat, well, that was going to be tough, but we had to have the piano tuned. And it's like, I learned certain, <laughs> certain values about money from my mom. It's like music and education and books were really, really important. They're always paramount. So I never mind, no matter how we've been through lean years on it and I in our early years. I've never minded how much you know we spend on a book or on on food in our house or on certain things because that's really important. But that but everybody doesn't share that. So I think that with money and with sex, the key thing is that you establish a channel of communication early on. You may not need it desperately today. <laughs> Everything may be going great with sex, for example, or with money, for example. You know, but you have a channel of communication because there's going to come a time where you need that communication. You need to be able to talk freely. Uh, about that. And I think one more topic that I think is really good to have early on is about aspiration. It's like, where are you going with your life? Where do you where do you see yourself? You know, you could say your career goals, but that's a limited way of looking at it I, in a bigger way. What are you here on this planet to do? And we don't always have the answers to that. My answer has been shifting and waffling and just kind of groping for, for decades. I feel like I got a handle on it now, but <laughs> it's a good conversation to have. 
because I think it's one of those things that a couple to endure for the long term, they need to have some kind of an alignment around what's the mission? What's the goal? Where, why are we here? What's really our purpose? And I don't mean to use such highfalutin terms as purpose and mission. That sounds like a corporate boardroom meeting, but that's, that's what it is. You are like a corporation. You are like a, a meeting. So I think that's important. Aspiration, spirituality, money, sex. Do we cover everything? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would add to that. It's really nice to actually have a conversation with your future spouse about what's their retirement plan. No, that's practical. There is another book that I would recommend to all young people listening to this call. And that is David Bach and John wrote a parable together that's called The Latte Factor. And The Latte Factor is a book about how to retire well and how to live well in the process, not to have to you know, live miserably in order to retire, but rather to be able to, to really make choices about how you're using money and to really be able to make money work for you instead of you just constantly working for money. And I think that it's a powerful book that your listeners would really appreciate simply because if you, you know, the social security system is not just broken, it's not going to exist for your generation. There will be no safety net. And when people get into their 60s, I think they don't anticipate that they might be too tired or they might be sick. They might not be able to continue working. And that's, you know, still 20 years before they might be dying. Shuffling off. So, yeah. yeah. So it's a lot of years of having to adjust. And I have seen people that had to sell the family home and put it in the bank and move into a very, very low income apartment because they really didn't have enough money to make it to when they would, would die. So, you know, those are conversations that, and the truth is the cost of a latte per day put into a compounding account will actually have you retiring as a millionaire because it compounds. Mm. And so if you start in your 20s and you really start that kind of account, you really can step into your 60s. You could step into your 50s and be ready to retire and travel and do things while you're still young and can appreciate it. And I think those are important conversations and ones that, you know, who thinks about that in their 20s? You know, it's like we've got lots of time yeah. in front of us. We just I didn't. were working and yeah, it, it's just not a conversation most people have. Yeah, we definitely agree with all those topics. And we think that you should talk about all of them. And I feel like the key thing that both of you said is early on, like those conversations should happen as early on in the relationship, especially those about sex and money. Uh, of course, you can talk maybe more about retirement as you get closer to knowing that this is the person that you're going to settle down with, but also about your passion and your goals and everything like that. It's all so important. One other thing I wanted to bring into the mix and get your thoughts on how much this should be talked about is past relationships. And I know, Anna, you mentioned a couple of examples in terms of if you have some type of past sexual assault or trauma or things like that. Obviously, those are bigger things to talk about. But what are your opinions in general, just with talking to a new partner about past relationships? Do you think it's important at all? Or what is your take? You know, I kind of feel like it's nice to enter a relationship with a fresh palate and not have the Mm -hmm. conversations be about past relationships. I've really seen both men and women have those conversations over a drink where they're just really dissing the previous partner. And it's just not that, to me, it's not that healthy a conversation. Let the previous partner live their life. You don't need to badmouth them to your new partner. I think that if you've had a sexual assault or something that happens, I would wait a little bit. But I would also be really tuned to whether or not they could wait for intimacy. 
because I think that the longer you can put off intimacy, the greater the excitement and passion that gets created when it finally occurs, because there's a whole lot of flirting and a whole lot of conversation and a whole lot of sensuality, if you will, that's sort of smoldering. So I think that if you can wait on that, then that's a little bit of a cue on how much he or she is respecting the boundaries of your wanting to wait a bit. I think it's perfectly legitimate to say things like, I don't just casually sleep with people. So I'd really like to have five or six dates and really get to know each other. And when the time is right, we'll know it. And to have that be okay, because if it's not okay with him, if he wants to move on, then he was lonely looking at you as a scorecard anyways. I mean, if he can't hold off his desires for six dates, that's too bad. Guess we got to move on. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's important for that conversation to come up eventually. It doesn't have to be one of the early conversations. I completely agree. And I think a conversation about the past and, and revelation of past relationships, as well as revelation about past, you know, all kinds of things can be like a, something that you gradually peel. It depends in part on how, uh, how the relationship is, is forming and bonding, because you typically need some, some established common ground of trust. Trust is a thing that you can only, and not just trust in, in you that I'm going to tell you my past because I trust you, but also that the other person goes the other way. It can be hard for the other person to hear about your past, right? When you're still brand new, fresh in a relationship. And trust is something that you can only develop over the course of time. There isn't any instant trust. You can have an instant affinity and an instant attraction, and that's awesome. But it's really hard to have instant trust because trust is something that's, that's based on experience over time. You need to have sort of built a foundation upon which to have that conversation. And then it can, it can unfold over, over its own time. Mm. Yes, there's definitely you have to gauge the relationship. And I think you need to become in tune with your own comfort level before you can have those conversations with someone else. But I do really like the tip anyone can take away of paying attention to how your partner talks about previous relationships. My fiance was married before and divorced. And that's something I always noticed was how he never spoke poorly about his ex, but more about we were able to openly communicate about what was wrong in the relationship and why, but it was never coming from a, an angry place. So that was something I could gauge pretty early. And we all have past relationships or most of us. I'm sure a lot of people when they're getting into relationships, they have baggage, they have past experiences, you'll eventually open up and talk about them. But on that note, I'd love to hear about your relationship, how you seem to have an amazing, well, you do have an amazing relationship. What was it like early on? How did you know that the other was the one if you did right away? Or I would love to hear a little more about your history. <laughs> Who goes first? Uh, sure. <laughs> so yeah, we fought like cats and dogs. No, we didn't really. How I started was this. So in our 20s, we met at a party one night at the school where I was teaching. And when I say met, this is air quotes for those of you who can't see us, because we saw each other across a room and literally it's like across the room, I saw her and thought she's the most dazzling thing I've ever seen. And we didn't actually speak a word. I didn't even know what her name was. And at the end of the night, I still didn't know what her name was. And in fact, we didn't see each other again for over 20 years after that. It's like this one glimpse one night 
I feel like I'm watching When Harry Met Sally when like yeah, the couples was, are talking yeah. in between about how they met. Did I mention this glass slipper she left behind? No, I didn't. <laughs> so over 20 years later, we happened to be, you know, we had common interests and we happened to converge at a business conference for this company that was like a, a nutritional supplement company. We were all involved in the natural health world. And we met at this conference and we happened to sit next to each other at this little meeting. And I remember her first words she said to me were, I love your writing because she'd read columns I'd written in a, in a business magazine. How could I not fall in love with somebody who sits next to me at a meeting and says, I love your writing? Anyway, <laughs> so we actually, we didn't fall in love, love in that instant. We fell in like, I mean, we took an instant connection with each other. We we both felt like we'd known each other for years, if not lifetimes. And we felt an instant connection and just had so many, so many interests in common, which were many. We had a lot of interests. And we just started talking. And we became colleagues and later business partners. We got involved in a magazine together and we, we just we were inseparable. And then after a while of all that, the rest of the fireworks went off and kaboom, we, we were just inseparable for life. That's my start, sweetheart. Take it from there. What do you add to that? <laughs> I don't have much to add to that. It was, it was very magical in a certain way. Yeah. At the same time, we had kids. We had been we in- We were both previous, divorced. Both divorced. We were both divorced and were, had previous marriages that had lasted a long time. So we felt like, I, I felt like waiting was really important. I did not. <laughs> in respect for our children. Yeah, he wanted to get married right away. And I was the one that said- we need to wait. Do you both have kids from previous marriages? Yes. yes. Yep. Okay. And blended families have a very, very high failure rate. So our kids were all teenagers. So I wasn't really interested in trying to do the Brady Bunch with teenagers. And also <laughs> we lived in different states and it would have not been okay to move any of our kids to the other state simply because it would have taken them away from their mother and or their father. And neither mm. one of us were, would ever do that to our kids. So. You know, there's things to pay attention to if you ever do go through a divorce. It's very important that you never badmouth the other spouse. It's very important that there's always the kids' needs come first. So we actually, we weren't engaged, but it was as if we were engaged for 10 years. We spent 10 years, <laughs> very close, but not married. And then we got married 10 years later. And our kids were all encouraging us by the time we got married. Our kids were like, you guys, get a ring, get a room, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story so much. And I totally agree. It's very important, I feel like, to take all those things into consideration. But yes, we always like to close with some quick rapid fire questions. It's been so fun learning more about the book and just hearing all this expertise, especially from a couple that has such a successful marriage and relationship. So thank you for sharing all of those personal details too. So what is one TV show that you both are currently loving? I'll go first. So we just finished watching all the episodes of uh, The Good Fight, which we absolutely mm. adored in part because Michelle and, and Robert King, who, who, did, who do that show, they're showrunners of that show, also did a show called Brain Dead, which only ran for one season but we totally adored it. So they're hilarious and they're brilliant. And it was, it was, it was great. That's it. That's it. We really don't watch much TV. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Our lives are very busy with really cool projects. And so we're, we're usually doing those things instead of watching TV. So we tend to watch sort of one episode of whatever limited series we're watching per night. 
Yeah, we pick mm-hmm. one one show that we're on, and now we have to we have to find a new show now. So, <laughs> well, that's a good rack. We'll take suggestions. <laughs> the first season of The Sinner. Mm-hmm. There's four seasons of The so Sinner. Good. Oh, so good. First great. season of The Sinner with Jessica Biel was pretty outstanding, mm-hmm. stunning. Well, I like that you both watch the same show. I, my fiance and I are big TV people, and I truly think if you don't have the same taste in television. As your partner, it's not going to work. <laughs> At right, least yeah. for me. That's it would be a non-negotiable point. for me. <laughs> Non-starter, huh? Add it to yeah. the book. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Outside of relationships and everything you talk about in your career and write about, what is a topic, could be random, that you could talk for hours about? I could talk for hours about nutrition, health, Chinese medicine, and I actually co-founded the first Chinese medical college in New England, and I had my child absolutely rescued by a very brilliant Chinese medical doctor. She had a serious seizure disorder, and he stopped it in its tracks in less than a week. Wow. With herbal medicine. Yeah. So I went on to study with him for a number of years, and I co-founded this school. And so despite the fact that I'm a therapist and I, I absolutely love helping people live richer lives and to really express themselves in ways that are authentic for them. I um, have a deep understanding of Chinese medicine and of healing. I love that. I'm a huge acupuncture fan. Great stuff. I could talk for hours about classical music. That's my, my lingua franca. That's where I can I still think in, in terms of classical music in my head. That's always going. So that, I could talk about for, for years about that. I could talk for hours about about filmmaking, even though I have never been a filmmaker. It was an aspiration of mine to be a screenwriter. I've written screenplays, but never had one produced. And I just, I love the whole filmmaking process. I could talk about that for hours. I could talk for hours about our dog, who we adore, I'm looking at right now. Who's, we could both talk for hours and weeks and months about food. Mm. Oh, well, that was my next question is what's the <laughs> food that you can't live without? One food we can't live without. We, we love to cook together and we just, we just adore food. I can't, you know, like Mia with you, the TV show, an incompatibility would be somebody who's like, eh, food, I don't really care. You know, it's like whatever, mm-hmm. just eat out of a can, Same. it'll be fine. What? Are you kidding me? Impossible. Yeah. So I don't think there's a food that we couldn't live without. There's a lot of food we couldn't live without. <laughs> We're really into a Mediterranean diet. So it's like really, really rich in vegetables and fruits and amazing fish and amazing food. So we're all over the map. Oh, we make our own grain-free sourdough bread, which is the most amazing. It's it's made with millet and cassava flour and we make our own starter and it's, it's really the most amazing bread I've ever eaten. It's so good. Wow. That sounds so good. I definitely need to learn more about that. Yeah. I can, I can send you a picture of them as they come out of the oven. They're like big giant round loaves. They're just absolutely amazing. A picture. Send us a loaf. We'll do it. That's right. Give us an address. We'll do it. Theoretically, we could live without that bread, but I'm not sure we'd want to. Mm -mm. What is outside of all of the amazing advice you have given today? What is one piece of advice you would each give to your younger self? To my younger self. And also I would give this to all of your listeners. You know, if you've already arrived at 27 or 28 years old and you haven't got your life figured out, relax. (laughs) It's like you could change careers two or three times between 25 and 40. And the final thing that you settle on close to 40 could be the thing that you really, really are just in love with. And that is really an expression of who you are and what you really want to share with the world. 
I really like to give people the advice, and I certainly wish I had had this advice as a young woman. Spend your time exploring, figure out who you are, learn about your boundaries and your needs. Really take your time in relationships because there's no need to rush into love or marriage. And don't be afraid to be single at 30. Like that is like so not a worry. Some of the most powerful relationships you'll bump into will be later. And it'll be at a time when you both have the maturity to really experience and appreciate who the other person is. And that is so powerful. So yeah, just, just give yourself as much space to grow and to learn about yourself as you possibly can. Wow. That's why I asked you to go first. I love listening to you. <laughs> um, it's funny because in a, in a book that I, that I wrote, which just isn't been published yet, it's coming out next year, there's a, a, a scene in the book where the, the young man is with his father who's playing the Shawshank Redemption on his TV set. And it's, it's that scene where Morgan Freeman is telling the parole board that he wishes he could talk to that young, stupid kid, his early self, who committed that terrible crime and what he'd say to him. And uh, the old man turns and says to his son, what would you say? And the son has no idea. He says, I know what I'd say. And I think about that because when I was young, I was in my 20s, I had so much confidence, but I didn't honestly have much self-knowledge. It's like I was really sure of myself, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> and so I was really closed off to a lot of what could have been and would have been actually really good advice from other people around me. If I could reach back through time and talk to myself would be what the father, his father says to his son, just have more faith and less certainty. I had so much certainty. I just knew I was right even when I wasn't, which was frequently the case. But I didn't really have this deep abiding faith. And I mean, what I mean by faith is faith in the outcome, faith that we're going in a good direction, faith that there's, you know, sort of in my, in my own life. I was holding on to my certainty with too much of a, of a gripping clutch to be a little more open-minded to the good advice and perspectives of people around me, particularly older people. So my advice would be have it, have it, keep an open mind. Don't get too sure of yourself. And I have another piece that I would add, which is um, whatever your mistakes, don't beat yourself up and forgive yourself <sighs> for them so that you can move on with clarity. Because I think that sometimes when we've had that truly bad boyfriend who maybe was so bad that you really just feel like, how could I possibly have chosen that person? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like when we're very young, we don't know ourselves well enough. And you will sometimes have those moments where you've made mistakes, you know, serious mistakes. Let go. Let go of it. Do not, you know, spend your time blaming yourself and being self-critical. It's really useless time. Yeah. Wow. I love all of that advice so much. This was honestly one of my favorite conversations that we've had. I feel like we covered so many great topics. So thank you both. This was amazing. Can you tell everybody listening where they can find you and where they can find the book? Yes, absolutely. So we have a site, which is just uh, one word, gogivermarriage, all one word, dot com, gogivermarriage.com. And the book's there. You can read an excerpt of the book. You can order the book through links there. The workshop that we teach, which is a live workshop via Zoom, two and a half hours or so, which we do every month, that's, you can learn about that there. Anna, I think mentioned this earlier, we're, we're going to be doing a Go-Giver Marriage Coaches Training Program. That's training for people who want to be certified as coaches of this material with other people. Not marriage therapists, not for couples, for individuals. You know, we have a philosophy which says that when you work on a marriage, you don't work on the marriage, you work on yourself. And so that's the Go-Giver Coaches Training Program. And that's also on the site. And also, finally, you can reach us on that site if you 
hit the contact button. The emails there just go to us. There's no staff. It's us who reads those and nobody else. So you can say whatever you want. And you can also see what Marie Forleo and all the other people who endorsed the book had to say. There's there's about 30 some endorsements there on the site. And it's it's really fun to see all the things that people said. And we'll definitely link all of that in the show notes, too. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. I agree with Carly. These are the types of conversations I love. And it was a pleasure having you. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this wisdom with us. Thank you so much. We've been anticipating this for so long. We're so happy to be here. 